It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, here's your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Have you ever thought that you have to choose between proclaiming the good news and honestly reflecting on the broken state of the world? This week, I speak with Reverend Dr. Leslie Callahan. One of the things that Leslie touches upon in this conversation is the notion that that's a totally false choice, a false dichotomy, that as preachers, she says, we never proclaim the gospel as if the world were okay. I thought that was a terrific insight. This is a fun conversation. Leslie is the first woman pastor at the historic St. Paul's Baptist Church in Philadelphia. In fact, she's only the fifth senior pastor the church has ever had in its 125-year history. She has a clarity of call that is absolutely refreshing. You'll enjoy this conversation. This conversation also wraps up our first 12 episodes of Preachers on Preaching. We're going to go on hiatus for a while, and we'll be back in February. In the meantime, If you know of any good preachers who would be interested in being a guest on Preachers on Preaching, please email me, preachers at christiancentury.org. You can also find that address on the Christian Century website. For now, here's my conversation with Reverend Dr. Leslie Callahan. I thought, Leslie, um, I wanted to ask you at first about the preaching that you grew up hearing as a young girl, as an adolescent, um, and what that was like. What's your... What was your experience in the pew like? So I remember as a fairly small child, uh, pretty much as long as I can remember, being someone who was both a fan of and a critic of preaching. So some of my earliest memories are of me as a small child coming home from revival services and other church moments and re-preaching my version, my toddler version of whatever the sermon was that had been preached. I grew up in the Pentecostal church. um, And I think I, even in retrospect with a different lens uh, theologically and just a different lens in general. I still think of the preaching that I grew up with as a young person as very good preaching. How how is it different from where you've wound up theologically yourself? So, I was uh, I grew up in a fairly conservative and biblical uh, way of interpreting the the biblical text. Um sort of taking for granted all of the assumptions that we imposed on the text. Um, The assumption that every aspect of um, historic ancient Near Eastern culture would be readily applicable to, um, at that point, late 20th century realities. very close textual preaching, but again, I think just embracing the assumptions. That did you we, did you wind up moving away from that set, those set of assumptions as a result of your education, or did you find yourself pushing back as a teenager and kind of second I, I guessing think, what was going on? It was more as a result of my education. 
one of the things that happened to me in terms of my education, the first thing that happened to me was the experience of developing enough distance from the text to see the ways in which the assumptions of the text were already not my own. The, the ways that a culture in which um, an agrarian culture, culture um, in which um, women were treated in particular ways and children were seen in particular ways, those assumptions I already didn't really share. So the first thing that happened for me was for the text to become more foreign to me. Mm. To learn that the Bible wasn't written in English, even relatively staid um, King James Version English that I had grown up with, that the Bible wasn't therefore as easily intelligible as I assumed, that it had to be translated and that every time someone translates, they make decisions about meaning and they impose something of their understanding and reading on the text. So both the, the historical and cultural distance, but also the distancing effect of multiple translations. Right. The, the stereotype is that somebody who grew up in a conservative biblical tradition, a Pentecostal in your case, is going to go off to seminary if they're going to a, a seminary that's more in a historical critical mode and sort of be disabused of their faith. I don't hear you saying that. It's more that the Bible became even more strange. Is that... Is that an accurate sense? So, so I think the I think the first step was in some ways to be disabused of my faith. I mean, there is some there was some fundamental way. For example, having grown up in a tradition where we were studying the Bible and treating it very seriously and doing um, biblical survey courses where we learned particular things about the construction of the Bible. Um, this is in church. It, yes, in church, growing up. It was hard to... This, this transition happened for me as an undergraduate religion major. It was hard to recognize that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. These sort of things that, again, I took for granted. Yeah. And that I made some... I wouldn't say they were life-altering, but they were fairly significant um, theological and interpretive decisions on the basis of those assumptions that I came to recognize as incorrect historically. So this um, happened for you first, as, an, as an undergraduate? So, yeah, so at first it was faith-shaking. Um, but the beauty of the tradition that I grew up in as a Pentecostal is that there was also a sense of the experience of God and the presence of God that, um, that kept me attached to the faith, even as I was trying and continue to be trying to make sense of it. Mm. So even as some of those underpinnings and assumptions are getting rocked or stripped away, the reality of God's presence that your tradition taught you and shaped in you that stayed constant and that stayed there for you. It, that... it, it, it was another form of evidence. It, it was something else I had to make sense of. 
Mm. So that I was having to make sense of new information about the Bible, about the faith, about the history of Christianity, about other faiths. Um, I moved from West Virginia to Massachusetts and suddenly um, my world of experience with people of other faiths exploded. Um, I knew people, I came to know people who worshiped God, who understood God, who understood the world in wildly different ways than the ways in which I, and even the people I was surrounded with, understood God in the world and faith. And so all of those things became pieces of a puzzle that I had to make sense of. But my own experience as a Pentecostal person, uh, my own experience of God, my sense of calling, that had to figure in. I often say that I picked up the Bible again because I knew I was called to preach. And so I had to figure out what I was going to preach. If the Bible wasn't the document that you thought it was. Right. So now I have to figure out some other way, um, some other way of reading, interpreting, and sharing the texts, the stories, other than the one that I had grown up with. That must have been an amazing experience to be, or maybe an isolating experience, I don't know, to be a young, like what, 18, 19-year-old college, first-year student at Harvard, Pentecostal Christian, diving right into it, right? Um, I mean, you probably could have. I certainly knew a lot of people who stayed far, who, you know, very conservative Christians who stayed as far away from the religious studies department in college as they possibly could. Um, you kind of went right in, you, right into the heart of the beast. Um, how did you sustain yourself in that during those years? Spiritually? I've never been. So, so here's the thing. I've never been persuaded that the best way to be a faithful person is to shut out the rest of the world. I was never persuaded of that. And if I had, my college years were, were very challenging along the lines that you've already described. But if I had really thought that my faith could not sustain the process of questioning and examination, then I would already have given it up. Yeah, yeah. So for me, um, I mean, I went through a period where I thought I'd become a Christian apologist because I thought that I could come up with good answers. But I never assumed that you weren't supposed to ask the questions. That's great. So it sounds like your your formative experience of the church, even though you ran into its limitations or wanted to question it as you matured, also equipped you in a beautiful way, right? To have a sturdiness in your faith and also a, an openness um, rather than closing things off. did You said at the beginning of our conversation that you felt, even though you've come some distance, and I want to talk to you about where you've wound up, but even though you've come some distance, you've also realized that you grew up on good preaching. What was good about it? It was... Um, it was creative. Um, people... The people who I grew up with took the text very seriously, and they told the stories well. Mm. So um, the re-narration of Scripture was done was done well. Very, very well. 
um, they, they told they told the story well, the story of Jesus. They told well. They told the biblical stories well. They were engaging. They weren't given to idle words. Mm. They didn't waste words. There there wasn't a lot of rhetorical. I don't know how to say this really. Rhetorical cheapness. Yeah. Well, I would assume if if you're worshiping in a tradition that's taking the Bible that seriously, there's going to be a reverence for the art of preaching, right? And uh, and by its own practitioners, a I don't know, an honoring of what's going on. Yeah, that's what I grew up with. Absolutely. So when you, I assume, then in your prior years, um, I mean, you have a, a terrific educations, but but those years at Harvard and then Union. And then at Princeton, you pr- I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, but you ran into a fair amount of liberal Protestant preaching. Is that accurate? Yes, that's, that's accurate. So what do you think liberal Protestants could learn from Pentecostals in order to improve our preaching? So I think, I think it's important. I, I've thought a lot about the questions that you posed. And I've thought particularly about the question of how I would describe my preaching. Yeah. And how I would describe my own preaching as as a background, as a backdrop to, to the question you're asking, how I would describe my own preaching is as black. And so what I want to say about I think that there's a way that across the spectrum of African American preaching that there are a lot of the elements irrespective of where one finds oneself on the theological perspective on the theological spectrum yeah that there's a fair amount of continuity between the sort of preaching that I heard when I was growing up that I thought was good and the kind of preaching both that I do and that I like now. Mm. You mean stylistically? I mean stylistically and also, um, uh, yeah, um, I, so there's the, the, you know, there's the part of uh, the, the characteristic call response in black preaching. There is celebration as a characteristic you know, the, the close mm-hmm. in black preaching that goes across, I think the theological spectrum. Um, so maybe the question I'm asking is not so much what can liberal Protestants learn from Pentecostals, but rather to cut to the chase. If I'm hearing you tell me if I'm wrong, what can white liberal Protestant preaching yeah. learn from black preaching in general? Right. That, that, that is, that's kind of where I'm, that is kind of where I'm going. The thing I would say is that I heard a lot of good preaching as it relates to um, European American liberal Protestantism. I heard a fair amount of very good preaching um, during my time at Union when I was a seminarian at Judson Memorial Church and subsequently. It seems to me that the best of all of the traditions have, at their heart, um, a capacity for telling 
the the part of the story that that's about God and Christ in a way that's compelling. Mm-hmm. I think that's the to me that's the essence of preaching. Whoever's doing it, I think that when liberal Protestant preaching is bad from my perspective, or is not as good, or or maybe even doesn't really feel like preaching at all, is when it's a kind of disconnected lecture related to perhaps something important and good and right on its face, but not tied into the larger story, what for me is the larger story of God being at work in the world, in, through us, sometimes in spite of us. Absolutely. I think that where we fall down, where liberal Protestant preaching falls down, is when we assume you know, we have these abstracted notions that we define God through, and then we assume that they are God, right? So I can get up there and proclaim some particular liberal political value as its own end, as its own thing, and I'm talking to people who agree with me for the most part, and then we can confuse that good, and it can be a good, with God, right? And then the whole experience becomes not all that. I mean, this is where we've shot ourselves in the foot as a tradition, and made ourselves irrelevant because one can get that same emphasis and reinforcement of their liberal values from the, you know, from also all over the place, from the New York Times, from your friends. One of the things I like in your preaching that I heard was a sermon that you preached a couple of weeks ago on the story of Hannah. Yes. And you tied in just beautifully, I thought, both some very pressing contemporary concerns for what I gather from your congregation and your community, but from a progressive political place, but you sewed them so tightly to Hannah's story that one could feel God at work historically back then for Hannah, but also God at work in the analogs that you were drawing to today's world. And that was very skillfully done. I loved it. Thank you. That really is, that's what I'm always trying to do. I'm trying to understand, and I think this is, this is for me, my own spiritual quest, um, that I, that I'm still very much in quest mode about. I'm trying to understand, and I'm trying to come to know where and how God is at work. And what I gather from the biblical story and biblical and from biblical stories are what I what I think are clues mm. to how God is at work. Have you found that question, that quest that you're on, to be sustaining in terms of the week in week out grind of preaching? So I, I think, and I say to people, I knew it would be hard to preach every week, and it is. And I don't think, I think it's very important to say to people who aspire to this, when you think you want to do this, and you may well want to do this, you may well want to be in the position, and I love to preach, and so I always wanted to be in a position to preach as much as humanly possible. (laughs) I'm somebody who really does, um, I love to preach. 
But there are two challenges for me, or a couple of challenges, maybe more than two at least, that come with preaching every week. One of them is, and preaching to the same people, to the same congregation every week. Yeah. One, and they're, they're really interconnected. One is about being fresh enough so that I'm not feeling like I'm really saying the same thing all the time. On the one hand, but also being um, repetitive and consistent enough that people have time to have ideas, perspective embedded. Mm-hmm. So like you want, I get, I, I get you completely. You, you want to both, you don't, there needs to be consistency, right? And there needs to be, Almost in a way, the teaching function of the pulpit ought not to be totally novel. No, I mean, it, right? But at the same it really time, it's a long time. I I grow more and more aware that the gospel of Jesus Christ is counter cultural and, in some ways, therefore counterintuitive, and we're always swimming against a tide that we both have to be vigilant about, but we also have to be offering this counter-narrative to the one that people are getting all day, every day, all week, every week, for a lifetime. And there has to be, in order to do that, there has to be a rather narrow insistence, right? You can't be flitting from topic to topic, theme to theme, cause to cause, that no, part and of you it. always have to. One of your questions was about about the good news. Yeah, and you have to bring. Um, one of the sermons that I was going to point you to is one that I preached um, at Haley Farm, following the acquittal of George Zimmerman mm. and the death of Trayvon Martin. So you were down there when that happened? When I the was there. Happened. So it happened over the weekend um, in 2013. And I was the first preacher in the Proctor Institute. They bring um, preachers every year um, in a series that they call the Great Preacher Series. And I, I was in the first service. I preached Monday night. And that was it. So there you are. That's so quite I'm the a first setting. Voice that week, right. With a lot of and, other preachers in the congregation. Yes. And with a lot of other young people, with, with a group of young people who have an activist bent. And all of us, I think, were, I certainly was, I think pretty much everybody there was deeply grieved. Mm hmm at the acquittal. Um, and we, I think the mood for me and for everyone I was talking to, and I think it was true in that setting too, was one of deep um, disappointment. And it was one of those points where you really need to hear something helpful. Yeah. And it's one of those challenging moments as a preacher because I didn't have any more kind of obvious answers than than anyone else did so what but did I you do a, it happened that the lectionary text so the the verdict came in on saturday and the lectionary text 
for that Sunday happened to have been the Good Samaritan text. Hmm. And I preached a sermon called Neighborhood Watch and really, really talked about the question of who is my neighbor and the corollary question of who is not my neighbor as both central to what happened on that street that night when Trayvon Martin was killed and also central as also as a a larger question that the church really needs to weigh in on that we need to be compelled by do you think that this so, is well go ahead so, so what i want to say about it was a particular instance of being challenged to preach of a moment in which it was challenging to preach, but it was also indicative of what I'm trying to do week in and week out, which is to speak to the questions that, that are raised in our community and our lives in our society that go from the personal weight of, you know, life transitions, births and deaths and marriages and divorces and all of that, but also that speak to communal transitions, moments particularly of communal mourning. That's what I was wondering. If the assumption is when we preach, our job is to proclaim the gospel, to tell the good news of, of God's love and our acceptance and what Christ has done for us, and how God sees us. And then you step mm -hmm. into a historical moment, like the one that you had at Haley Farm. Does that assumption start to fall apart at that point? Like, is the pulpit better served? Are people better served? Is, is God better served simply by lament and, and mourning? Does it feel sometimes... I don't, I don't think know. those two things are different. I, mean, okay. I, don't, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't put those things in opposition to each other. It reminds me, you know, you. We all have to preach um, when when the children were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. It was in the midst of Advent, um, and I can remember earlier in that week one of my colleagues whom I respect immensely, it was the week before the third Sunday in Advent, which is often the Sunday where we focus on joy. Yeah. And she cautioned us to forget about it, you know, not to try to do joy. And I, like anyone like any normal human being was deeply troubled by what had happened and i preached a sermon called how can we ever speak of joy mm. the gospel never gets proclaimed this was the the heart of that sermon is that we never proclaim the gospel as if the world is okay yeah. The gospel has within it, I think, both the capacity and the responsibility for lament. 
So it almost begins with the with the assumption of the need to lament, right? Absolutely. So I don't think, you know, I don't think this is the and they all lived. I don't think that the resurrection is and they all lived happily ever after. I don't think that's the. I don't think that's what we proclaim when we proclaim the gospel. Yeah. And I I don't think we ask. I, I we certainly shouldn't be asking people to look up on the sorry state of our relationships with one another and and the terrible terrible things that happen in our world we should never be asking people to ignore those things we when we light the joy candle we we should never be asking people to do so without a deep awareness that there are hurting people you know, that for those of us in this hemisphere, at least, that is, we always light it in the midst of the the midwinter around the time of the solstice when the days are, are shortest. Mm-hmm. And many people are deeply depressed, both because of all the holiday things, and but also because many of us are affected by the lack of light, just in our day-to-day interactions, you know, just the sun goes down. We don't get enough light. It's a gloomy time of year, absolutely. It's a gloomy time of year. So I, I don't think, so I, th- I think that's the challenge. And all of that, it really is for me about, um, it's really about taking this seriously. Taking like- the gospel seriously. taking And taking our human condition in all its beauty and, and sadness and all of that, it means taking it seriously. And that if we do, what I hear you saying, if we do take both the gospel and our own brokenness and beauty seriously, that interchange, those assumptions are going to deflate the false dichotomy of sometimes there's good news and sometimes there's not. And if there's not good news, we're participating in some kind of fiction when we're proclaiming the gospel, right? That the good news cuts into and against and absorbs all of our pain. It doesn't erase it. It doesn't negate it. It doesn't heal it even. Absolutely. You know, I said, I I was talking about the crucifixion yesterday. And I think a lot about the, my God, my God, why cry from the cross? One of the things I said yesterday is that we hear... In that moment, we hear our pained cry in God's mouth. Mm. Like what it means, that's the gospel too. Absolutely. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes, sometimes there, isn't, there isn't an obvious proclamation of good news in the sense that there isn't, there isn't always for me a celebration. Yeah, and that the incarnation itself... While it is the the good news, a portion of that, maybe even the predominant strain or note in it, is that God is suffering with us, right? I I, I don't know where you're coming from theologically all the way across it, but for me, I think the most important book I've read, of work of theology to inform my preaching, is The Suffering God, or Crucified God, excuse me, that Jürgen Moltmann book. That one can authentically preach Christ without preaching a sort of saccharine 
mistruth. Yes. So you're preaching at a historic congregation in Philadelphia. You've been there for how long? Six years and some change. And the church itself is like 120 years old. Is that right? It's 125 now. 125 years old. And you're the fifth pastor there. Yes. Those are some long tenures. Yes, um, generally speaking. The fifth pastor and the first woman. Yes. What was that like to step into that historic pulpit as the first woman? So I was struck by a lot of things, one of which you just pointed out, which is that it doesn't sound so bad to be the first woman when you're one of five. (laughs) So um, I think that St. Paul's, I was awed by actually being called to a church Mm. because it happens in the tradition. It's happening more often now for women, but it still happens pretty infrequently. St. Paul's is a Baptist church. It is a Baptist church, yes. So you had this sense of call as a little girl. You would come home from revivals and and re-preach the sermons that you'd heard. You carry it with you right into your college experience. I mean, it sounds like this lifelong sure. call residing in your heart. Yet even up to that point, after you've put all this work in, there's a sense of, like, I don't know, a sense of, like, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like, what I hear you saying is, like, just deep gratitude, right, for that call finally absolutely. being acknowledged by a congregation. That I absolutely 100% still feel. mm because I am aware, I'm aware of the, this reality, and I know personally many very, very gifted women who never get a chance. Yeah, yeah. I know people who died never having gotten a chance. Mm. So I did not take for granted that the fact that I had a sense of call that I had gifts for ministry and even recognized gifts as a preacher, that that would mean that a door to pastoral ministry would ever open. Mm. You know, I, tell you, I, I, I would go to churches to preach. And while I'd be sitting there, these would be churches that didn't have pastors. While I'd be sitting there, people would say, oh, we want to make sure we have you back next year for this women's day, this event, whatever it was. But nobody thought to say, why don't you apply to be our regular preacher? Never occurred to them. They knew they wanted to hear me again. They expressed that they wanted to hear me again. But it never crossed their mind this person could be our pastor. That a pastor can look like that. And what was beautiful I learned subsequently from some of the members of the search committee, because one of the things that they did was um, they asked me for my preaching schedule and all of the search committee members had heard me both on recording and live somewhere here in the city before I actually came to St. Paul's to preach my candidacy sermon. And one of the members of the search committee talked about how they came to hear me at a church here in Philadelphia and that while I was preaching, what he said to himself is, that person could be our pastor. Mm. We could hear her every week. 
and that that for him was what moved him past his own admitted skepticism about the possibility of calling a woman to being like, well, you know, this, this particular woman, I want to hear more. But I had been, I preached in many places where they were in the midst of pastoral searches or about to begin pastoral searches and folks had not approached me to say, would you consider? They didn't even see you, it sounds like. Even, I mean, what an irony. No. Even as they are resonating right. to your proclamation, they can't see you as their pastor. I don't look like, I didn't, to them, I didn't look like a pastor. On the flip side, what a beautiful story about congregational polity, right? I mean, why would you want to go where they weren't going to see you? And then you get to wind up in this congregation that knows who you are and loves you for who you are and wants you as their pastor. That's why you hear continuing um, six years later, very much, very deep gratitude. What's it like to be? They were able to see it. And it's, you know, they were able to see it. And I don't know why other than, you know, providence and grace. I don't know what it is about this particular group of people that made them able to see it. But they were able. And and even some folks who didn't initially see it hung in, hung around long enough to be able to see it. Because mm. that's also the story. Anytime that you know, the, the challenge of congregational polity is that it's very rare for anybody to get 100% in terms of a vote. Yeah. And so you always go into a church with, with some skeptical people who don't see you as the right person, as the right pick. And then you got to just put the time in, right? Right. And you, and you, you know, you you try to be, you try to be right. I guess is the <laughs> you try to be what they saw. Yeah, you, you try to be right. So, and you, I think what I what I try to do is to just trust that it would become clear to them. So, what is what's particular about preaching in Philadelphia? You're not a you're not a native of Philadelphia, right? You're from West Virginia. So when you got there to St. Paul's, is there anything in particular like about that city that feels distinct in terms of who you're preaching with and to? Uh, um, I would say that Philadelphia is a surprisingly conservative city among Black Baptist churches, at least. There are there are not a lot of women senior ministers. Um, and there's still a number of churches here in Philadelphia where women don't minister formally at all mm. in ways that are surprising, I'll say, that have been surprising to me because this is a major city. Um, I didn't, and it, I just didn't expect I, this, this to still be so... Um, to, to be this conservative. So are you a total anomaly in black Baptist circles in Philly as a woman preacher? Or do you have colleagues? No, not, not totally. Um, but um, it's rare for women to be senior 
pastors and Baptist churches here, um, most of the ones who are, or at least several of the few who are, are in churches that they inherited from pastor fathers. Mm. Um, so I, I think it is odd for me to not be a native Philadelphian, not to have, I mean, I've been here a, a good while now. I've been here since 2002, but I haven't been here so long that I would have taken it for granted, right? Even though you've been fully embraced and accepted by your congregation, is the the novelty of a woman Baptist preacher, are you, do you still run, do you still have to sort of like over and over again be educating people about who you are and the reality of your call? Or is it kind of done and over with? I don't put spend any time, any of my time, trying to persuade people that I can do, that I should do what I'm called to do, what I'm called and authorized by God and our congregation to do. I just do it. Mm -hmm. I do occasionally run into people who don't particularly again, because Philadelphia is a fairly conservative across the board town, I do run into people who are surprised by it, who, who expect me to be some different version of pastor than what pastor means in their context, because I'm a woman. I do run into that periodically. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. But so they're, the they're assuming thing- a greater degree of difference than actually is happening. Well, I think they think I'm going to be that people just say I'm the pastor and really there's somebody else who's the leader. Mm. Or I don't know exactly what it is they expect to happen. But and it and it's sometimes professionals, you know, sometimes it'll be funeral directors or people who come to the church in a professional capacity, whatever that might be. And I've been doing this a minute now, too. I'm, I'm also a veteran at the work. I do my job, and I try to do it well, and I try to do it irrespective of whether, you know, all of the children of the deceased were in favor of my doing the eulogy or not. Just try to do the job well. That's a beautiful way to look at it, and I would imagine for anybody on the vanguard... That's what you have to do, right? Um, you yes. can't you can't go into it with the feeling of okay, each and every time I'm going to be met with some sexist skepticism. Like that's the point because the point is, if I understand you correctly, the point is to answer your calling. Absolutely. And if, as a result of your answering that call, somebody's mind has changed, that's lovely. Yeah, that ha- and it's happened a lot. Oh, I imagine I it's happened a lot. My as it relates to sexist skepticism, my job is not to harbor any of my own. Mm. And I think a lot of times... You mean internal, internalized? Inter- right. Like, like this is only... Sexist skepticism is only a problem in those instances if I'm the one who harbors it because then it keeps me from doing what I'm both called and authorized and gifted to do. Did you feel like you had to do work to root that out of yourself or is that... 
we started this conversation in this place where I was talking about the various pieces coming together. And part of what I said then is that I was driven, I remain driven to keep putting the pieces together by the depth of my confidence in my call. Mm -hmm. When I didn't know what to do with the Bible, I knew about myself that I was a preacher. And so it's like, you got to make some sense of, of the Bible. You got to develop some way of interpreting the scriptures because you need something to preach. So I, I feel like, you know, so whatever it has taken in answer to your original question, whatever it has been, whatever it has taken in terms of self image and confidence and education and training and reading and studying and whatever it takes in life to be able to do this work of ministry, I have done and I keep doing. Mm. The sense of grit that you've got um, and the gratitude is a rare combination that is a beautiful thing to behold. Leslie, thank you so much for being a guest on Preachers on Preaching. This has been an enlightening conversation, and I'm, I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you very much, Matt. I enjoyed the conversation. Um, I love thinking about these issues, and, and I'm appreciative of the opportunity to relive some of these parts of my story. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.